Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Trump-endorsed candidates go 12-0 in Tuesday's primaries. We take a look at the results from elections in eight states. Over 100 sheriffs in Georgia are condemning a gubernatorial candidate for supporting calls to defund the police. They represent around two-thirds of the sheriffs in the state. Mexico joins the investigation into the human trafficking deaths in Texas as two Mexican nationals are charged in connection with the smuggling attempt. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill want the Federal Reserve to prioritize not just the economy, but also social and racial justice. They passed a bill that would amend the Fed's roles and responsibilities. Twelve candidates endorsed by former President Trump secured their party nominations in the primaries Tuesday. Although two were running unopposed, it was a clear demonstration of Trump's influence in the GOP. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the results. Colorado, Illinois, New York, Oklahoma, Utah, Mississippi, and South Carolina all held primaries on Tuesday. In addition, there was a special election held in Nebraska for a House seat. Former President Donald Trump's influence was on full display in the Republican primaries. Out of Trump's winning picks was Colorado incumbent Representative Lauren Boebert in the House primary for District 3. And in Illinois, incumbent Mary Miller wins the GOP nomination for the 15th Congressional District. Incumbent Representative Darren LaHood took the 16th District nomination with about two-thirds of the vote and Representative Mike Bost ran unopposed for District 12. Darren Bailey won his party nomination for governor. Oklahoma Trump-endorsed primary winners include incumbent Governor Kevin Stitt, who won with 69% of the vote. Incumbent Representative Frank Lucas won in Congressional District 3, and Representative Tom Cole in District 4. Representative Kevin Hearn ran unopposed in District 1. In Utah, Trump-backed incumbent Senator Mike Lee beat two challengers with over 60% of the vote to win the Republican Senate primary. And incumbent representatives Burgess Owens and Chris Stewart won their House primaries. In New York's gubernatorial primary, incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul secured her party's nomination with close to 70% of the vote. Congressman Lee Zeldin won the Republican nomination. Zeldin beat Andrew Giuliani, the son of New York City's former mayor Rudy Giuliani, and two others with over 40% of the vote. Zeldin will face an uphill battle against Hochul in the general election. He will need to win over independent voters that outnumber Republicans in the state, along with Democrats, in order to win in November. Oklahoma's Democratic Senate primary is going to a runoff, with Madison Horn and Jason Bollinger advancing. James Lankford wins the Oklahoma Republican Senate primary. Crystal Matthews wins the Democratic Senate primary in South Carolina. In Illinois' Senate primary, Tammy Duckworth ran unopposed for Democrats, and Kathy Salvi won on the Republican side. Mississippi's House GOP primary runoff for District 2 has Brian Flowers as the winner. Colorado's Republican Senate primary has Joe O'Day beating Ron Hanks. O'Day had 55% of the vote and will face incumbent Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, who ran unopposed in the general election. In Nebraska's House special election for District 1, Republican Mike Flood beat Democrat Patty Brooks for the House seat left vacant by Jeff Fortenberry. The congressman resigned this year after being convicted on three counts of lying to the FBI. Flood and Brooks will face each other again in November's general election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
A disputed election map in Louisiana drawn by Republicans can remain in place for the next elections. The Supreme Court on Tuesday granted an emergency application by Republicans to reinstate the map while they hold off on the decision. Louisiana state lawmakers approved the map in March after overriding Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards' veto. The map kept Republicans' advantage in five of the six congressional districts. Only one district would have a black majority and favor Democrats. Around one-third of Louisianans are black. Some Democratic voters filed the challenge to the map. They say the map maximizes political power for white citizens by concentrating black voters in one congressional district. The Supreme Court said it would hold off on considering the merits of the case until after it hears and decides a similar case from Alabama. A former Nebraska congressman was just sentenced in California for lying to investigators about illegal campaign contributions. Republican Congressman Jeff Fortenberry was being investigated back in 2016 for taking money from a foreign billionaire during a fundraiser in Los Angeles. It's illegal for foreign nationals to contribute to a federal campaign. But when the FBI went to talk to him about it, they say he lied to them over and over again. Ultimately, Fortenberry was found guilty of three felonies. He will be on probation for two years, serve 320 hours of community service, and pay $25,000 in fines. Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams is facing backlash over her alleged support to defund the police. The backlash is coming from over 100 sheriffs in her state. Here are the details. A total of 102 sheriffs in Georgia have joined Georgia Governor Brian Kemp in a statement condemning Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams over her support of what they call soft-on-crime policies. The state has 159 sheriffs. Thank you very much. Kemp, a Republican, is seeking a second term. He will be competing against Abrams in the November election. The governor and the sheriff's statement reads, Stacey Abrams has repeatedly shown complete disdain for law enforcement and the risk we take every day putting our lives on the line to serve our communities. Ms. Abrams actively serves on the governing board of and has profited from an anti-police organization, which openly advocates for abolishing prisons and stripping local police departments of their funding. The organization they are referring to is the Margaret Casey Foundation, a Seattle-based grant-making group. Abrams became a board member of the foundation in May 2021. Less than a month later, she was one of the board members supporting the foundation's rollout of an anti-police initiative. The group has given grants to groups including the Movement for Black Lives and Louisville Community Bail Fund. The group's Twitter posts also show that it supports the abolish the police and defund the police movement. The sheriff's statement goes on to say, quote, We are grateful to have the support of Governor Kemp and his administration, and we call on Stacey Abrams to disavow the dangerous policies she supports. A spokesperson for Abrams' campaign told Fox News Digital that Abrams does not support defunding the police and, quote, is a longtime supporter of investing in law enforcement alongside building community trust and fostering law enforcement accountability. Mexico has joined the investigation into the deaths of 51 suspected illegal immigrants found in Texas. They were stuck inside a tractor trailer in sweltering conditions. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador said Tuesday that 22 Mexicans were identified among the dead, along with seven Guatemalans and two Hondurans. That's according to IDs they found. No news on the rest. These unfortunate events have to do with the situation of poverty and desperation of our Central American and Mexican brothers and sisters. The victims were found on the outskirts of San Antonio Monday, where temperatures topped 100 degrees. A fire department official described stacks of bodies in the trailer 
and said there were no signs of water or working air conditioning. López Obrador said another factor is the status of the U.S.-Mexico border. It happens because there is also human trafficking and lack of control at the border between Mexico and the United States and inside the United States. López Obrador's comments echo what Texas Governor Greg Abbott said after the tragedy. Abbott criticized Biden's policies, tweeting, These deaths are on Biden. They're a result of his deadly open border policies. The Biden administration has rolled back some Trump-era policies, including the border wall and the migrant protection protocols. Meanwhile, the White House says the border is closed and puts the blame on human traffickers. In a statement Tuesday, Biden said this incident underscores the need to go after the multi-billion dollar criminal smuggling industry, preying on migrants and leading to far too many innocent deaths. Authorities charged two Mexican nationals Tuesday in connection with the deaths. They were charged with possessing firearms while in the United States illegally. Authorities located the men after responding to the incident. Mexico's president said he'll meet with Biden in Washington in a couple weeks, and immigration will be a central issue in their discussions. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he is investigating Walmart over its sales of prescription opioids. Paxton says Walmart will be required to submit documentation relating to orders of opioids from 2006 to the present day. The documents will be submitted to the DEA and all state agencies in Texas. The investigation will focus on sales, promotion, dispensing, and distribution of prescription opioids. Walmart said in a statement to Fox News that it would answer Paxton's questions and was confident about its record on opioid safety. It says pharmacists at the company have declined to fill countless questionable opioid prescriptions and have been criticized for being overcautious. Walmart was previously sued by the Justice Department over its alleged role in fueling the opioid crisis. However, Walmart said the investigation was tainted by historical ethics violations. That lawsuit was temporarily put on hold. In another case, Walmart was among pharmacy giants found liable for fueling the opioid epidemic in two Ohio counties. And now we turn to the Federal Reserve. The agency is responsible for ensuring price stability and the well-being of the overall economy. But going forward, lawmakers on Capitol Hill want it to prioritize racial and economic justice. Here are the details. The House approved a bill earlier this month that would require the Federal Reserve to address social justice concerns. Named the Racial and Economic Equity Act, it would amend the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 to expand the mandate of the central bank. The new mandate would oblige the Fed to promote racial and economic justice. The original Federal Reserve Act says the central bank's function is to maintain price stability and full employment. Now this new bill says the Fed, quote, shall exercise all duties and functions in a manner that fosters the elimination of disparities across racial and ethnic groups with respect to employment, income, wealth, and access to affordable credit. The bill also has new provisions for inclusive lending practices, promoting diversity in financial institutions, and reducing sexual and racial discrimination in housing. The Federal Reserve would be responsible for all of them under the new rules. Congresswoman Maxine Waters and five other Democrats sponsor the bill. It passed the House by a slim margin of 215 to 207. President Biden has shown support for the cause, but it is unlikely to pass the Senate, which is more evenly split. The bill could reflect growing pressures on the Federal Reserve to promote political ends concerning racial, sexual, and climate issues. But critics warn that that could undermine the Fed's crucial political independence and lead to potentially disastrous economic consequences. 
During the Senate confirmation hearings of Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell earlier this year, several Democrats asked him about his commitment to using his position to advance social causes. Powell's response emphasized his focus on economics over politics. He said that sound monetary policy would benefit marginalized groups. New data shows President Biden's efforts to lower energy prices have reduced the nation's emergency oil reserves. The reserves now stand at their lowest levels in over 35 years. The Department of Energy says the Strategic Petroleum Reserve declined 6.9 million barrels in the week ending June 24th. In total, the emergency supply of crude oil stood at just under 500 million barrels. That's its lowest level since April 1986. The U.S. consumes close to 20 million barrels per day, which leaves the country with a 25-day supply of oil. At this rate, the reserve will shrink to its lowest level in 40 years by fall. The Department of Energy has revealed plans to replenish emergency stocks in response to growing concern about the depleted reserve. This fall, it will launch a buyback process to repurchase 60 million barrels of oil, or one-third of the six-month emergency oil release. And coming up, the National Transportation Safety Board has an update on the Missouri train crash. Four people have died. The crash location was known to be unsafe. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Arizona Republicans are looking to prosecute pro-abortion protesters over the attempted breach of the state Senate building. The lawmakers say they will review footage of the June 24th protest to identify those involved. Arizona's House Majority Whip says that if nothing happens through law enforcement agencies, the Senate will likely hold a hearing to determine who was involved. He says he's hopeful that those trying to break into the Arizona Capitol will face the same charges as those involved in the breach of the nation's capital. About four years ago, Arizona Senate President Karen Fan spearheaded an effort to deploy a permanent security barrier around Arizona's Capitol complex. The communications director for Arizona Senate Republicans says Fan plans to revisit the proposal in the coming months. She said Fan received numerous requests from Senate members to launch an investigation into what they are calling the attempted insurrection of June 24th. After Roe was overturned, politicians and legal officers are calling on the Justice Department to take action. Senator Chuck Grassley is seeking an FBI briefing on pro-abortion extremism, saying communities nationwide are now facing violence. And Texas AG Ken Paxton is urging the head of the DOJ to investigate threats and attacks against pro-life judges and organizations. Next, we hear from a pastor with 20 years of experience talking about potential moral and social implications of the pushback to the high court's ruling. Please welcome Pastor Lucas Miles, who is an author and faculty at Summit.org. Thank you for making the time, Pastor Miles. Hey, thanks for having me on. Now, a church in Fairfax County, Virginia, was vandalized over the weekend. Smoldering mulch was found nearby, and authorities said there was graffiti associated with abortion. How do we make a sense of this? You know, I actually took some time over the weekend. I'm a local pastor myself in, uh, outside of South Bend, Indiana, and I just searched on Twitter uh, just some keywords related to the road decision and violence. And I was shocked by some of the things that I found. I mean, this is a coordinated effort. You know, we are seeing chatter all over the internet um, where abortion activists are encouraged other activists to show up at churches, to push back against them, to disrupt worship services, to vandalize the buildings, and even some language of burn it down if you have to. 
And I think that um, the left has really identified the church as the main instigator uh, for the fall of Rome. And as, as opposed to just bad jurisprudence, which, you know, most people would point to in regards to the decision originally. And uh, they've targeted the church. And this is really, in my opinion, it's a hate crime. And it's something that uh, uh, we're seeing, unfortunately, that's becoming a lot more commonplace. And what is the church doing in response to becoming a victim in this case? You know, it's interesting. So obviously, when, when uh, things like this become violent, I mean, it's very important that churches uh, stay vigilant, that we are alert. Uh, I encourage churches to have good security teams. You know, our, our position is completely defensive. We want to just continue to have great worship services and, and have the freedom of worship and having our people be able to come to church without fear of, of harm or anything like that, and our buildings protected. Uh, I think it's also, you know, the other things that we're seeing is where uh, there was a couple stories, I think it was last two weeks, where, uh, you know, women are going into churches and then taking their clothes off and yelling, my body, my choice, in order to disrupt the service and force insecurity to kind of grab their half-naked bodies to drag them out. This all, you know, of course, is a, is a very, it's a nu uh, nuisance to the church. Uh, it's an annoyance. But, you know, when these things start getting violent, that's where it becomes a real concern. I hope that lawmakers step up. They start, you know, recognizing these things as hate crimes. They prosecute this to the full extent. But as Christians, we're going to keep worshiping and we're going to keep doing our thing. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, we have seen nonviolent demonstrations and protests, as well as attacks on pregnancy crisis centers and churches. Is there any justification for political violence surrounding this issue of abortion? There's never justification for political violence. I think that, you know, this should really be, um, I would love to see some figures on the left uh, you know, uh, really, you know, speak out against this and, and uh, uh, you know, make sure that it's very clear that this is not the response. But we're seeing the exact opposite. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing figures, you know, really encourage this sort of behavior with strong rhetoric that is, uh, seems to be leading people uh, to thinking that this is a justifiable action. You know, we have this mob culture uh, that if we don't like something, if we don't like a ruling, that if we just get out there and we get loud enough about it, and we, you know, we uh, burn things in the streets and we, you know, break glass and windows and everything else that somehow we're going to get our way. And that's just not how the United States of America works. And it's not how our justice system works. A judge has ruled that abortions can resume temporarily in Texas. What does it say about the urgent need for abortion? You know, that, look, there are, and, and, you know, I want to be clear, there are some pro-life Democrats left. They used to be a lot more commonplace. Uh, but what we are seeing is really sort of this blood crazed. Uh, um, mentality on the left in regards to this issue of abortion. Um, you know, I read one of the statements about this case in Texas, and, and an individual said, you know, any day that, you know, uh, every day that we continue to have legalized abortion in Texas is a victory. And, you know, they are just hanging on for each and every day that they can, uh, you know, uh, have children, um, you know, murdered within abortion clinics. It's, it's really, it's, it's depraved, it's sick, it's demented. And, uh, you know, my prayer as a pastor is that people would just come to their senses, that they would see that this is a desecration of life uh, and, and that they would really, you know, see the value in each and every child uh, that is conceived. Pastor Lucas Miles, faculty at Summit.org, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thanks for having me. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, gave an update on the investigation into a deadly crash where an Amtrak train slammed into a dump truck in Menden, Missouri. The chair of the NTSB, Jennifer Homendy, explained that the crossing where the crash happened is a passive crossing. So this was a passive grade crossing. There are active crossings and passive crossings. What makes this a passive crossing is there was a stop sign 
and crossbucks. There were no arms, there were no warning lights, there were no bells. Those are active uh, crossings. In Missouri, there are 3,500 passive crossings. It's about half of their crossings. The train slammed into a dump truck in Cheriton County. The chief elected official of that county says residents and county leaders have been pushing for a safety upgrade at the railroad crossing for nearly three years. Meanwhile, the toll rose to four deaths and 150 injuries. At least 15 remain hospitalized. The dead, three passengers and the truck driver, have not been identified. The National Transportation Safety Board in Missouri is in Missouri investigating the collision. Preliminary reports indicate the crossing where the train hit the dump truck was uncontrolled, meaning there were no lights or mechanized arms. A jury of seven men and five women will decide the fate of Florida school shooter Nicholas Cruz. Should he be sentenced to death or get life in prison for his 2018 massacre? The selection of a dozen jurors Tuesday capped a nearly three-month selection process that began with 1,800 candidates in April. The jury will decide whether Cruz receives the death sentence or life without parole. That's for the murders of 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. Cruz pleaded guilty in October to those murders and 17 accounts of attempted murder. The current jury will only decide on his punishment. The Michigan Supreme Court has ruled that a judge had no authority to issue indictments in the Flint water scandal. The ruling Tuesday wipes out charges against former Governor Rick Snyder, his health director, and seven other people. It's a major defeat for Attorney General Dana Nessel, who took office in 2019. She created a team to investigate whether crimes were committed when lead contaminated Flint's water system starting in 2014. In a money-saving move, Flint managers, appointed by Governor Snyder, switched the city's water source to the Flint River. State regulators said the river water didn't need to be treated to reduce its corrosive qualities. That was a decision that allowed lead from old pipes to flow through the system for 18 months. Two former Michigan health officials were charged with involuntary manslaughter tied to deaths from Legionnaire's disease, which was blamed on bad water. Snyder was charged with misdemeanors. A 34-year-old Colorado man is recovering after he was gored by a bison at Yellowstone National Park Monday. According to park officials, he was walking on a boardwalk with his family near the Old Faithful Geyser. The group reportedly did not leave the area when a bison charged at them. The bull bison continued to charge and gored the man, causing injury to his arm. He was transported by ambulance to a hospital. Park officials say the matter is under investigation, but language in the press release suggests the man was too close to the bison. They remind visitors to stay more than 25 yards away from wildlife. This is the second reported goring at the park this year. Ahead of a busy July 4th travel weekend, Delta is issuing a waiver that will let customers rebook their flights without paying change fees or fare differences. Travelers covered by the policy have tickets to fly between July 1st and July 4th. Travel must be rebooked and begin by July 8th and begin and end at the same airport that was originally booked. The waiver allows customers to pay the same price for rebooked tickets, even if the new fare is more expensive. It also includes basic economy fares, which are normally excluded from such offers. Airlines have had a challenging summer. After downsizing during the pandemic, flight delays, cancellations, and staffing issues wreaked havoc on the industry. Canadian police say two gunmen were shot dead and six officers were wounded during a gunfight at a bank in British Columbia. 
Tuesday's shootout took place at the Bank of Montreal and Saanich in Vancouver Island. Nearby homes also had to be evacuated after the discovery of a possible explosive device in a vehicle associated with the suspects. Saanich Police Chief Dean Duthie told a news conference that the suspects had been heavily armed and initial reports suggested they wore body armor. Duthie added that the six wounded officers were taken to the hospital, some of whom would soon be released, but others sustained very serious injuries. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said on Twitter he was shocked and saddened by the violence. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, Turkey removes its objections and paves the way for Sweden and Finland to join NATO. The two countries can now move ahead in the next step of the process. In Greece, an ambitious plan to end decades of reliance on low-quality coal is put on hold. The move is in response to a huge rise in natural gas prices amid the war in Ukraine. Find out more after this short break. Turkey has lifted its veto over Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO. The decision came after the three nations agreed to protect each other's security. It ends a weeks-long drama that tested unity against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. With the signing of this document in Madrid, Turkey is giving a green light for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. The chief of the nuclear-armed alliance, Jens Stoltenberg, heralded the deal, which came just ahead of a NATO summit. And I'm pleased to announce that we now have an agreement that paves the way for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. The move tees up what could be the biggest shift in European security in decades. The two long-neutral Nordic countries now want the alliance's protection in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The agreement prevents a potentially embarrassing impasse and allows NATO leaders to save face as they aim to show resolve against Russia. Turkey's main demands were for the Nordic countries to stop supporting Kurdish militant groups on their territory and to lift their bans on some sales of arms. Finnish President Sauli Niinistö described accession as imminent. Uh, that was very necessary agreement. Even though we had to compromise, I would say that... Uh, we will follow also uh, from now on Finnish legislation. We do not have any need to make changes because of this uh, agreement. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson touted the development as fantastic news. Earlier, US President Joe Biden had said it was crucial to have a united NATO. And uh, today NATO is united and as united and galvanized as I believe it's ever been. And uh, we are ready to face the threats of Russian aggression because, quite frankly, there's no choice. Still, it's not a done deal for Sweden and Finland just yet. NATO's chief said the alliance's leaders would officially invite the countries to join soon. But the member country parliaments also need to ratify the decision, and that could take up to a year. NATO is set to cite China as a concern in its new strategy brief. It will be the first NATO strategy brief in a decade to cite the Chinese regime's growing threat. Both China and Russia that they were against any NATO enlargement, and that's the first time China so explicitly has in a way had a strong opinion directed against uh, NATO and NATO uh, um, uh, enlargement. 
NATO diplomats told Reuters that the United States and the United Kingdom want to use tough wording, but France and Germany are more cautious. The main subject of this week's NATO summit is addressing the increasing threats posed by China and Russia. China is the world's second largest economy, so Beijing attracted more concern. That's because it supports Moscow amid the Russia-Ukraine war. China's military ambition also continues to grow in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. That threatens the freedom of ships to navigate there, as well as Taiwan's territorial integrity. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said NATO's report will speak in unprecedented ways about China. But he said competition between the United States and China does not mean confrontation or conflict. Energy market turmoil amid the war in Ukraine has triggered an increase in coal-fired electricity production in Europe. In Greece, an ambitious plan to end decades of reliance on low-quality coal has been put on hold in response to a huge rise in natural gas prices. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Coal has long been treated as a legacy fuel in Europe. Now it's helping the continent cope with the dramatic rise in natural gas prices. This is Greece's biggest open-faced lignite mine, near the northern city of Kazani. The material is commonly known as brown coal. The lignite center of western Macedonia was indeed the heart of the country's energy production. The plan has certainly changed due to the depletion of deposits and environmental issues that have come up. The company will continue to operate in the region, changing the form of energy that is used and moving on to renewable energy sources. Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis announced a 50% hike in lignite production through 2024 to build up reserves. Greece's Power Workers Union is pressing the government to opt for coal, instead of using gas imports that are now more expensive. We had 75% of energy demand to be produced from Greek lignite. The EU views the end of Greece's coal era as inevitable. And many experts argue that coal's brief return will only be a backstop for renewables and grid modernization. Satiris Capellos is chief operating officer at Hellenic Petroleum Renewable Energy Sources. He says that investment in renewables will lead to new jobs in the green sector. All this uh, green production can can uh, contribute to the, to, to the production of other green products like hydrogen, um, uh, electromobility, and all these, these areas that will come in the next years. And these areas will, will create more, more uh, jobs for, for the local people and also for the wider economy of the area and also for the whole of Greece and Europe as well. Industrial powers are closely watching regulation in Europe and how it reaches international climate goals. China uses more coal than the rest of the world combined. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, Japan is looking for ways to conserve power during its record heat wave. Stores are shutting off electronics as authorities warn of power cuts. And the Philippines is looking for a solution amid a plastic pollution crisis. The country's dependence on single-use plastic sachets is polluting waters. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Japan is seeing record high temperatures this month. The heat in Tokyo broke nearly 150-year-old records in June, and authorities are warning of possible power cuts. Here's more. Japan baked under scorching temperatures for a fourth successive day on Tuesday, with authorities warning power supplies remained tight. 
temperatures hit over 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. It's the worst streak of hot weather in June since records began in 1875. It got hot suddenly and it's really tough. I usually keep the air conditioner below 82 degrees Fahrenheit. It's so hot that I don't even want to walk around outside. I feel really terrible. If there's a sudden power outage, we're going to have problems in our daily life. If it gets hotter than this, I think it will not just be a warning, but a serious alert that the power outage may happen for real. And the heat wave isn't about to break. The Japan Meteorological Agency forecast highs of almost 97 degrees Fahrenheit later in the week. Authorities have asked residents to conserve energy, warning of possible power cuts. Offices of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government building turned off lights and elevator services. Electronic stores took similar steps, turning off televisions and other goods on sale floors that would normally be kept on to lure buyers. The reserve ratio on Tuesday evening is expected to fall below 5% in Tokyo and eight surrounding prefectures. Reserve capacity below 3% risks power shortages and blackouts. Heatstroke alerts have been issued in some parts of the country. Cases of hospitalization rose, with emergency services saying 76 people were taken to hospital in Tokyo. And many in the capital and elsewhere continue to flout government advice to reduce heatstroke risks by not wearing face masks outdoors. The heatwave calms less than two weeks before a national election, in which prices, including the cost of electricity, are among key issues, according to voter opinion polls. Residents of Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, took to the streets in protest this week. This comes after China illegally took over a so-called no-man's land along their shared borders. The protest was led by a group called the National Unity Campaign. Members demonstrated with signs outside the parliament building. They were demanding that Beijing stop encroaching on their border areas. According to protesters, China fenced and installed electric wires in the uninhabited area next to the northern Gorkha district. This is a violation of the mutual agreement between the two countries. Authorities have yet to comment on the fencing. Relations between Nepal and China have been heating up in recent years. China has become a major aid donor and trading partner to its tiny neighbor, offering major investments in hospitals and other infrastructure. In the past, the Nepalese government has pledged not to allow any protests against China after receiving economic aid from Beijing. Palm-sized pouches made of plastic and aluminum foil have exploded across the developing world. People use them to sell mini portions of everyday products like laundry detergent or snacks. But the pouches don't biodegrade and can't be recycled. Here's more on that story. In Gloria Molina's household goods store in the Philippine capital, Manila, toothpaste, instant coffee and laundry detergent go by the handful. A regular bottle of shampoo costs around $2.00 while a palm-sized packet, or sachet, costs about 50 cents, even though it's less than a tenth of the size. Many living on meager wages all across Southeast Asia and the wider developing world consider it the better alternative. These are our products that we usually sell out. There's all kinds of packaging. We have biscuits, coffee, candies, and bread. Sachets are a lot easier to sell compared to other packaging, like bottles, because that's what we poor people can only afford. 
A study by environmental group, the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, said a staggering 163 million sachets are used every day in the Philippines. But the pouches, made of layers of plastic and aluminum foil, aren't recyclable or biodegradable. Many are swept out to sea by garbage-strewn rivers flowing through overcrowded cities like Manila. Of all the countries releasing plastic waste into the ocean, a report from the University of Oxford ranked the Philippines at number one. Some living in the country, like Andrea Gonzaga, have begun to move away from sachets altogether. I do understand the convenience of using single-use everything because it's already measured and all that. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it really affects our environment. And like I said, it, it's more cost-efficient to just purchase bigger bottles. Legislation to ban single-use plastic items has been introduced in Congress, but that has languished despite repeated calls by environmental groups to pass it. Alternative legislation requiring consumer brands to contribute to the cost of collecting and disposing of plastic waste has been ratified and is awaiting signature from the president. Maria Rosario Garcia is one of a group of professors from the University of Santo Tomas who conducted a study on the social and environmental components of plastic pollution in Manila Bay in 2021. In relation to government and producers, they should modify sustainable packaging for consumer products. One commodity at a time. They cannot simply, uh, what they call this, stop plastic use and then look for an alternative. They can do it one at a time. Big consumer products companies have acknowledged that plastic waste is harming the environment and that they're working on solutions. Still, this waste is only continuing to grow. Critics say laws regulating solid waste are inadequate and poorly enforced, leaving governments and communities struggling to address the sachet pollution crisis. The Philippines Department of Environment and National Resources did not reply to Reuters' request for comments on how effectively laws have been enforced. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, survivors of the 2015 Paris attacks are expecting a verdict after waiting about 10 months. One survivor says it will bring some relief. And Brazil's Cabo Frio is a three-hour drive from Rio de Janeiro. It features beautiful beaches and fishing villages that have made it a destination for high-end tourism. We'll have all that and more for you after the short break. Swiss bank Credit Suisse was found guilty by the country's federal criminal court for failing to prevent money laundering by a Bulgarian cocaine trafficking gang. The case involved millions of euros in bank deposits made by the trafficking ring to Credit Suisse between 2004 and 2008. The deposits came as a result of drug sales activities and were used to buy real estate in Switzerland and Bulgaria. It's the first such criminal trial Switzerland has seen against one of its major banks. The case involves a former bank employee who is also a former Bulgarian tennis player. She had a financial relationship with a Bulgarian ex-wrestler, a key figure in the cocaine smuggling ring. The court fined Credit Suisse $2.1 million and also ordered the confiscation of assets worth over $12.5 million. In a statement, Credit Suisse 
said that the bank is continuously testing its anti-money laundering framework. The bank told the Epic Times it will appeal the decision. The verdict on the suspects in the 2015 Paris attacks is coming out today, marking the end of a trial that spanned nearly 10 months. One of the survivors called it a relief. On the night of November 13, 2015, the deadliest peacetime attack ever occurred in France. Islamist gunmen attacked the Bataclan concert hall at 50 Avenue Voltaire in Paris. It is through this window which they broke that they came out through the roof, running on the huge roof of the Bataclan after going out of a sky window which was on the corridor. Six bars and restaurants and the vicinity of a stadium were also targeted the same night. The attacks claimed 130 lives. 90 of them were killed in the Bataclan region. Victims and bereaved families testified at the hearing. They recounted the pain and hardships of moving on. Arthur Denevaux is the president of the Victims Association Life for Paris. He's also one of the survivors. It's a relief. It's mostly a relief, both because it means that justice you know, has made what it had to do, but also because it means that this trial is behind me and I can go on with my life. Denevo said the victims had low expectations for the trial, but noted it went beyond their predictions. The trial overcame anything we would have come to hope and wish for, uh, because terrorists spoke, terrorists in, in a way answered to what we say in our testimonies, and that was so unexpected. That never happens in terrorist trials. The main suspect, Salah Abdeslam, is the only surviving member of the group believed to have carried out the attacks. He began the trial by saying he was a soldier of the Islamic State, but ended up apologizing to the victims. Uh, when Salah Abdeslam decided to speak, to apologize, you know, I don't know whether it was genuine or not, but still, he felt he had to do the effort, so that counts. Abdeslam could face life imprisonment without parole. Thirteen others were present in court, ten of whom are also in prison. They were charged with crimes including helping provide weapons or cars to the attackers or planning to participate in an attack. Six more were tried in abstentia. Early sailors feared Brazil's Cabo Frio as a site for shipwrecks. Nowadays, its beautiful beaches and fishing villages have made it a destination for high-end tourism. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Brazil's Portuguese colonizers founded the city of Cabo Frio in 1615. It's located at the entrance of a salt lagoon and was the site of competition among European powers for natural resources. The oldest part of town is the most charming part of the city for many. We are at the neighborhood that was the first population nucleus of Cabo Frio in the Lagos region. Passagem still preserves the buildings of the 18th and 19th centuries. It's very well preserved and an important tourist attraction. Back in the harbor, fishing boats fill the Cape. Fifteen miles northeast of Cabo Frio is the world-renowned fishing village of Buzios. Despite tourism being the main activity, fishing is still going strong here. This region here has the highest fish population of the Brazilian coast. We have an important fish production chain that offers protein in Brazil and abroad. Today, Buzios has a great number of accommodations in the upper price range. The Pusada Abracadabra Hotel overlooks the bay, and the swimming pool also has a great view for guests. Besides the beaches, which are beautiful, all of them, there is very interesting gastronomy here, and despite the recent growth of Buzios, it hasn't lost its characteristic identity. 
Inns located on the hillsides often provide great views of local bays and beaches. American expat Carl Schienemann owns the Bahia de Jao Inn. During his years here, he's developed a website highlighting interesting points from an environmental and natural outlook. Santa Lagoinas for me is uh, one of the most spiritual places you can find in Buzios. It's uh, the location of what was the, uh, the equivalent of the Himalayans here in Brazil 500 million years ago. Buzios and Cabo Frio have many different beaches. Some are good for diving, while others are better for surfing. Getting here is about a three hours drive from Rio de Janeiro. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, a dog in a Chilean park is now a green superhero in a comic strip. He is entrusted with defending the environment, and he has an unusual superpower. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Man's best friend has become a green superhero at a park in Chile's capital. He's working to clean the park with his superpower, collecting garbage. Let's look at what he's been up to. Sam the Border Collie appears at least three times a week in San Diego's Metropolitan Park. He joins his owner on walks there, picking up trash from green areas along the way. His image, complete with an orange vest, has become famous in an educational guide cartoon. This became much more widespread than expected, and it has spread very well on social media. There are many good comments about the comic, how it came to be, and about the campaign communicating the idea of cleaning up trash. Catalina Aravina turned the five-year-old Kali into a star in the comic titled Sam, the Parkamit Superhero. His owner, Gonzalo Chiang, said the idea was sparked by the amount of trash they found on their usual walks. The artist who made the illustrations portrayed Sam quite well. She got to capture much of who Sam is, and the message itself contained in the instruction manual is the correct one, because these are not places to come and dump trash. The park is home to a zoo, several hiking trails, and a gondola railroad. They launched an anti-litter campaign last year, urging people to switch from plastic cups to glass. That's under a garbage classification and educational program. Visitors like Sam have inspired us to accelerate this education process and structure this garbage classification. But also, in adopting this work routine, in this way of looking at Santiago's daily life, seeking to become more and more cautious when caring for the environment, taking care of our forests and our parks. Sam's image has been used as the face of a park care campaign. It tells visitors to take their trash away or use one of the 40 recycling sites throughout the park. Preparations for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar are in full swing. On Tuesday, media were shown around some of the accommodations available to fans who will attend the event. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. The Gulf country of Qatar will host the first World Cup in the Middle East, the first in an Arab or Muslim nation. Still we have a lot of uh, inventories available. We are waiting to, to, for the moment that we can say that we are sold out, which is still, we didn't reach that thing. Qatar is roughly the size of Jamaica and is also the smallest state to have held soccer's biggest event. We expect that we will get more than millions of uh, fans during the World Cup. And uh, we, are, we can say that uh, we have more than 100,000 um, uh, rooms available as of today for the fans. 
Fans from the 32 competing nations are set to watch games at eight stadiums clustered around Doha, the capital. That means supporters will be able to easily reach all the venues, raising the possibility of watching more than one match in a day. In contrast to recent tournaments in Russia and Brazil, where flights were often needed to travel to each venue city. We keep, uh, received a lot of, uh, of money from investors, of either if they are hotels or holiday homes, or uh, uh, new initiatives or, uh, or uh, ideas from investors. So uh, as of today, we have more than 100,000 rooms. No other tournament has ever been held in the Northern Hemisphere winter. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Comfort foods provide a quick boost, but the science is clear on what foods really nourish mental health. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. If you've had a long day or you're too wiped out to cook, do you ever reach for a fresh salad? Probably not. Like most people, you may head to the pantry to grab a box of mac and cheese, or perhaps the freezer for a tub of ice cream, no bowl. That stuff may help take the pressure off and make you feel all right, at least initially. However, these foods contribute to inflammation and can promote depressive effects in the long term. They can also become addictive and increase the likelihood of weight gain, heart disease and diabetes. On the other hand, diets high in fruits, vegetables, fish and whole grains can lower the risk of depression by fighting inflammation. A meta-analysis published in 2018 in the British Journal of Nutrition found that for every 100 grams of fruit or vegetables consumed, the risk of depression fell by 5%. People don't often think of salads, fruit or oatmeal as mood boosting. That's likely because the impact isn't immediate. Eating a salad won't instantly start churning out feel-good hormones. In fact, improving mood with food takes a bit of a long-term outlook. Eating fresh foods and focusing on plant-based options regularly is the best way to fight inflammation that can contribute to depression. That doesn't mean there's no room for comfort foods, you just want to consume them sparingly. Perhaps once a week and then ideally once a month. Some people use the 90-10 approach, which is to eat nutrient-dense foods 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. If you eat a lot of comfort foods, then scale back gradually. Going cold turkey can cause a very uncomfortable shock to the system, but at the same time it still has benefits. Also, look to substitute taste and bring pleasure to eating through spices and other flavours to help battle inflammation. Someone with deep pockets can soon own some art related to The Last Supper. A pair of chalk and pastel studies of Leonardo da Vinci's legendary painting are going up for auction by Sotheby's. The items are the portraits of St. John the Evangelist and St. James, who sat next to Jesus Christ in the artwork. They are expected to go for over $140,000 a piece. The studies are attributed to Leonardo's assistant, but experts aren't exactly sure why they were produced. The 25 by 18 and a half inch studies were once owned by a 19th century Dutch king and are described by Sotheby's as extremely rare. The auction is scheduled for July 6th. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.